Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Continuous Play Podcast Series on Cartoons and People, featuring Anna McCoy. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. And Jay Newcastle. Holy smoke, he's a dude! In this episode, we'll revisit Roger Rabbit. We'll review the plots, talk about the themes, and give our recommendation for further viewing. Continuous Play is not affiliated with any movie, television, book, music, or publishing-related company. Any discussion of the plots, characters, or music from the film is done so for entertainment purposes only. All properties are copyright and trademark of their respective owners, and all rights are reserved. Welcome into the second part of Continuous Play's review of Cartoons and People, now with the 1988 blockbuster Who Framed Roger Rabbit, starring Bob Hoskins, Charles Fleischer, Christopher Lloyd, Kathleen Turner, Joanna Cassidy, and Lou Hirsch, written by Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman, based on the novel by Gary K. Wolfe, directed by Richard Williams on the animation side and Robert Zemeckis on the live-action side. Made for $70 million, which is still a lot of bucks, made $329 million plus worldwide in its theatrical run. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. And we're glad you're here with us. You know, last time, Anna, we, we went back to the classics. We talked about a Disney classic, Mary Poppins. And then we go forward for another, could you call it a classic? I guess it's been out long enough. Roger Rabbit, a, a film that, you know, has stirred a lot of controversy in its day and in, in, in its wake has left a lot of controversy, but was a groundbreaking film for interactive animation and live action. It's not only cartoon characters and people on the screen together, and they're not only, you know, a little bird landing on your hand. This is full on, we're grabbing the rabbits and throwing them against the wall. There's all kinds of stuff going on in this thing. Yeah, and I was wondering, just as you were saying that, could this be a precursor to the CG work we see in movies like Avatar and stuff now. I, I think totally. It's made in 1988. I mean, this was three years before, you know, the, uh, sim- uh, the seminal CGI breakthrough film everybody always points to is The Abyss and then Terminator mm-hmm. 2, which were James Cameron films. And I think The Abyss was 1990, T2 was 91, <laughs> right around that same time. So, yeah, I, I think that's a totally fair comparison. But, and also, this is the first time, like, we talked about Mary Poppins, the animation is just kind of background. But this is the first time that the animation, the like you said, you saw rabbits hitting the wall, you know, carrying the rabbit, hanging cuffs to the rabbit, the weasels with their guns and everything and stuff. And this is the first time you really saw the live action interacting with the animation. Oh yeah, it's definitely and the BS came out in nineteen eighty nine. So you got you got this in eighty eight, which it was made in eighty six, eighty seven, came out in eighty eight. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the Abyss, which came out and was made in eighty eight, came out in eighty nine, and then you've got Terminator two, which came out in nineteen ninety one. So yeah, those these three films are a, are really a precursor to a lot of the CGI we see today, good or bad. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting story. Um, it's you know unlike Mary Poppins, which you know the source material was a a series of books which 
were children's books, but they also had a little darker tone to them. This, of course, is based on a novel as well by Gary K. Wolf, and I've, I've read parts of it, and it's a detective noir piece. It's definitely a dark piece. And, and it's interesting how they've interpreted it, because unlike Mary Poppins that went completely the other direction and the light, you know, went as light touch as they could on it, they went a little less dark than maybe the book or the short stories here with this, but this is still a pretty dark movie. I mean, it's definitely got that that detective noir feel to it. Also, another thing, not just the Disney characters, and mm-hmm. this this is was produced by the Touchstone, which is a Disney-owned studio. Not just the Disney characters, but it has the Warner Brothers characters. It even has uh, Betty Boop in it, I think. Yeah, everybody, everybody's in it. Woody Woodpecker's in it. Everybody's in it. The, the golden age of American animation is showcased in this film. You get all the favorite cartoons of, of your day in this one movie. And, and even though they don't all play big parts, they're there. And it, it having that presence together is so... It's just neat. It's just, it's just really cool. I like animation. The other cool. thing I was yeah. going to say is, um, these are our beloved, no matter how old you are, and no matter which ones you like, oh, yeah. if you're Looney Tunes or Disney or whatever, these are our beloved childhood characters. And, you know, do we really want to think of them? I mean, it's a different twist, and it's interest, It's an interesting twist, don't get me wrong. But, you know, do we really want to think of them as, you know, real actors who have their own houses and their own lives? And like the baby in the very first scene with the baby cussing and everything. Like, oh, my God. We, we need to reveal this now because we've, we've established on, on our reviews here that you are the yeah. Disney fanatic uh, of, of, of the podcast team here. Well, I'm just going to reveal to you now. I never was a big Disney right. person. I was a Looney Tunes kid. I was a Warner Brothers kid. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Sylvester the Cat, my favorite three cartoon characters ever. Ever. I mean, hands down. All right. So, and part of that is just what I grew up watching, what I liked. And it's also my theme park mm-hmm. experience. Okay. Because we both grew up in the South. You've done Disney a lot in your life. Well, growing up for me, uh, going to Six Flags in Georgia was a mm-hmm. big deal in Atlanta, Georgia. And there's a big Warner Brothers theme down there. There's a big feel to it down there. Always has been. And I love that about it. And I, I still have a, a gray and black cartoon drawn. Bugs Bunny hat that mm-hmm. I bought at one of those parks. I love that thing. So so I am big into the, That's my set of animation. And we're going to bring these things together now. And one of the things about the, the old Bugs Bunny cartoons is there was a series of them that would come out every now and then where they would go and shoot bugs at his mansion, you know, and he would be talking about stuff. And it was sort mm-hmm. of like the greatest hits of his cartoons, you know. And so they've done, they've established that that, that possibility, that world exists before we even do this film. So, to, you know, for me, that wasn't a big stretch because I'm used to seeing that with him. Now, they went a step further that we never really got to go with with Bugs. He's still eating carrots and pretty benign. Uh, you know, Baby Herman definitely goes in more the realm of South yeah. Park than anything. But the, uh, and, uh, don't get me wrong. I love Looney Tunes. I actually think they're funnier than... Um, the Disney stuff. And I had a teacher tell me one time in high school, she's like, yeah, the kids watch it for the animation, you know, like Elmer Fudd chasing the rabbit kids think that's funny, but grownups watch it for the humor. Cause it's grown up humor. And, and Disney, is, yeah. I will admit Disney doesn't really have grown up humor. You know, it's everything, everything Disney from the movies to the theme parks 
everything is so benign, I think. It's just it's just so clean cut and cheery and happy and blah blah blah. Whereas the Looney Tunes were a little bit grittier, a little bit funny. I love the wily coyote. He's like genius and stupid little roadrunner keeps keeps throwing rocks on them and stuff. But I think the Looney Tunes are very funny. And I wish on a little tangent, like you said, Six Flags, I wish Six Flags would get an even bigger Looney Tunes presence than they already have. Because actually, yeah. I, I live in Georgia and I live off I-20, which is just down the road from Six Flags. And I wish they would mm-hmm. get a bigger um, Looney Tunes presence. Like, more, maybe not go as far out as Disney does with everything, but have more characters run around, more stuff themed to the Looney Tunes Looney Tunes stuff, and but that's not a Six Flags Park, and that's an ex, that's a discussion for another day. But I wish they would do that. So I don't have any ill will towards the Looney uh, Tunes, even though I'm a big fan. Oh no. No, no, no. I just thought it was, it, it was neat to say I had never declared my animation yeah. preference on, on these podcasts, so it, it was time to just come on out with that. So, you know, before we go any further into this, we we got to roll through the plot, because much like our discussion with Mary Poppins, folks, it, there's no way we can go scene by scene through this thing and keep this podcast within any reasonable amount of time. So I'm going to give you the whole thing now, and and as best I can, so try and keep up. Um, as we said, this is a murder mystery set in 1940s Los Angeles, 1946-47 to be specific. And it's in this surreal world where cartoon characters are also living beings who are basically actors in cartoons. And, and they work the same way human actors do, except that they're impervious to all sorts of pain. That's why you can drop pianos on them and nothing happens to them. Um, the cartoons commonly referred to as Toons uh, interact freely with humans and live in an area near Hollywood called Toontown. Now, the owner of Maroon Cartoon Studios, R.K. Maroon, um, is there. He's one of our characters. Of course, Roger Rabbit is a fun-loving Toon Rabbit. He's one of the biggest stars of the Maroon Galaxy. He's married to Jessica, who's gorgeous. Uh, this gorgeous cartoon. And Baby Herman is Roger's co-star, who's actually a 50-year-old toon who looks like an infant. Marvin Acme is the prank-loving owner of Toontown and the Acme Corporation. You've seen the Wiley Coyote cartoons. All the Everything comes from Acme. This is this guy. Trouble begins when Maroon hires a private detective, played by Hoskins, named Eddie Valiant, to investigate rumors that Jessica is cheating on Roger, is having an affair. Eddie doesn't trust Toons because one his brother was killed by a tune. His brother Teddy was killed by a tune a few years earlier. And so he, he goes on this you know little adventure and he finds pictures of Jessica playing patty cake with Acme, which it amounts to cheating apparently in the tune world. And and Roger becomes distraught, runs away, and you know, hits himself in the head with an anvil a hundred times. This makes him the main suspect though, because Acme is found murdered a few days later. At the crime scene, Eddie meets a character named Judge Doom, played by Christopher Lloyd, and he has a toon patrol of weasel henchmen. And even though toons are impervious to pain or physical abuse, they can be dissolved using a mixture of paint thinners that he calls the dip. Baby Herman insists, of course, that Acme's, in Acme's will, 
you know, Toontown goes to the tunes to sort of have on their own or whatever. But uh, of course, you know, there's a lot of dispute about this because they can't find the will. And if it's not found by midnight, then this people that own uh, some sort of industry are going to come in and uh, build an interstate system. And there's just sort of this running joke that who, who would ever want a freeway system? How ridiculous. And we go along, and of course, Jessica tells Eddie that Maroon blackmailed her into compromising Acme, and Eddie learns that Maroon is selling his studio to the road-building company. It's all a big mystery. Maroon, Maroon explains to Eddie that Cloverleaf will, will not buy the studio unless they can buy the, the gag-making factory. They, Acme makes everything from portable you know disappearing holes to the magnets you see grab everything it's it's all over the place his plan was to use the 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 blackmail photos uh, to to get acme to sell but before he, he can say he's shot dead by an assassin and eddie and jessica are, are fleeing the scene when he finds her in toontown she explains that judge doom killed maroon and acme in an attempt to take over toontown uh, because it, apparently it's going to be in the way of this new freeway. Eddie, Jessica, and Roger are captured by Judge Doom and his weasels that are held at the Acme factory. Doom reveals his whole plan because that's what evil people do. They reveal their plan before they kill you. Um, he, he sets up this sprayer that's basically going to cut Jessica and Roger in half. It's this big fire hose looking thing. But in a great fit of uh, desperation, Eddie decides he's going to you know take out the weasels and he basically makes them die of laughter by trying to perform a vaudeville act, which is one of the funnier things in the film. And in this big struggle, it's finally revealed that doom is not only, you know, able to kill tunes, but he himself is a tune and he is the tune that killed Eddie. Eddie, of course, is able to get the drop on him, opens up a drain to the dip machine and dissolves doom in the dip. As the tunes and the police uh, arrive, Eddie discovers that Acme's will was written in disappearing, reappearing ink on a blank piece of paper that Acme gave to Jessica. Eddie gives Roger a big kiss. Everybody celebrates, and we run off into Toontown in happiness. And that's the basic plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Are you confused? Because I was. Uh, the good point is, it really doesn't matter, because all you got to know is it's a big mystery, as our main character, Roger Rabbit, is framed for murder, and Eddie is going to try to solve the murder to get him off. It's that same story you've seen on Matlock 567 times, so except with with rabbits and you know stuff like that. You know, I'll I'll say this right here: the best thing in this movie to me is not the animation, and I'm not going to knock on the animation. Bob Hoskins in this movie is is wonderful to me. He he looks like a drunk out-of-work um, private detective. I think that's the character he's played in everything he's been in. I'll say this, he's really British. So we talked in the one about Dick Van Dyke, who's American's horrible British accent. Bob Hoskins did a wonderful American accent. Maybe it's easier to do an American accent than a British accent. Maybe the British are more talented. But, I don't know. So. Maybe they are. Yeah, he... He did a he he has played British people before because I do remember, but of course I'm only like seven or eight years old when this movie came out, and I'm like, oh my! And my mom's like, yeah, he's British. I'm like, no way, that's so good. And when I'm watching this again, you know, 20 years later, I'm like, yeah, he's still really good. So yeah, he did a wonderful job. But you know, some of the people. He wasn't their first choice, of course, because really before Who Framed Roger Rabbit, who's ever heard of Bob Hoskins? Yeah, I mean, really, what you know? what had he done up to that point? A lot of bit parts, and, you know? And, um, so, but they had looked at, like, Paul Newman and Harrison Ford for that part. People like that. But they, they passed 
obviously. Wow. I, okay. Harrison Ford may be in a stretch because he can be kind of rascally and funny, but Paul Newman? Really? Yeah. God, I just, that would have been weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, and also, wouldn't it? Like, Paul Newman just, wouldn't Paul Newman have been like 60 at this point? Because he just died a few years ago and he was like 80. I'm going to say, this is around the same time as The Color of Money, so. Yeah, wouldn't he, wouldn't he have been around 60 years old at that time? It could have been. So I don't yeah. think. You know, I, like the age of, you were talking about in Pretty Woman and Runaway Bride, the age appropriateness. I just don't think that would. I'm not saying Paul Newman couldn't have brought pulled it off because he was a wonderful actor, but I just don't. I just don't know if the age appropriateness. Harrison Ford, I could kind of see like a stretch. At least he's the appropriate age. Yeah, but but even but even then, that would have been weird. Indiana Jones in a rabbit movie, that would have just been weird. Yeah, this, this, uh, look, you know, on Solo just doesn't play with rabbits. Okay, that's just that doesn't work. So, um, though you know, it, after the, you know, I'm surprised Lucas didn't try to insert him in one of those prequels with Jar Jar Binks, who is basically a cartoon rabbit. Uh, but but anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> anyway, let, let's talk a little bit about Roger Rabbit here and this whole world that they've set up. You know, we said in the last film. It felt like they never went outside, and in fact, they didn't uh, because it's all shot on studios and lots and stuff like that. This film's got a lot of the same stuff. They don't spend a lot of time outside in it, but I never like got caught up in the fact that that's a mat or that's just a scene. You know, they did a good job of sort of building that detective noir scene, and I'll tell you, watching this, I, in my head, I'm starting to think about films like L.A. Confidential, which is another detective noir film, you know? But anyway. But another thing about this movie, it's set on, it's basically set on a movie lot. Yeah. Think it's in context. Yeah, yeah. It's in context with being outside on a movie lot. You've got the sound stages, you got the offices, and you're out on a movie lot. It's not like they're wandering around by the Hollywood sign or going or trolling through Beverly Hills. You know, it's in context with the movie. True, true. And you got a good point there. It, it It's set on a film lot for the most part, it, it sort of, I mean, I don't know. You have to go in accepting a lot here and they give you a lot early on. I mean, you know, a lot of what I explained there about, you know, we live in this world where cartoons are people and they're just actors. They don't ever explain that to you. You just pick that up from there. They're shooting a Roger rabbit cartoon and then something messes up and you see baby Herman start cussing and smoking a cigarette and, you know, or, and all that going on. And you realize that, this world is different, but it's still our world. But these are just other worldly people in it. I don't know. They don't go through any exposition to set that up. They just sort of give it to you. And I want to say this. I credit the film for that because they could have gone through this whole bit about how to set that up. And see, in the book, and this is the difference, in the book, Roger Rabbit is a comic strip. He's not a mm-hmm. moving picture. None of these things are moving pictures. It's the tunes are all comic strips. I, I think it was genius to bring it into the cartoon world, and we bring in the, the animation that we all know and love. So we put him on stage with Bugs and and, and Donald Duck, and all you know all these mixed characters all the time. It gives it a little more life. Mm-hmm. It does. They did. They did a very good job of that, and I think that's the best way to do it. They spend like what, three to five minutes at the beginning of a movie. You're basically watching a Roger rabbit cartoon Yeah, and it's not in the sense. And like I said, this was a Disney produced movie and Roger rabbit was drawn by Disney animation, but the cartoon feels so looney tunes. Like the knives are coming at them. Yeah. 
the stuff like that in the toaster. I, I found that kind of a paradox, like like I was I was saying before we started, like everything in the Disney universe is so nice and neat and wrapped up in a little boat. Everything's so magical. And yay, we're all happy. And I mean, it's everything Disney. That's everything Disney related from the parks to the movies to the cartoons. But, you know, Looney Tunes, you got Wiley Coyote <laughs> dropping off a cliff and the Roadrunner knocking a big old rock after him. You know, you've got Elmer Fudd shooting himself in the face or something because yeah. Bugs Bunny switched the gun around. And this was very, to me, this was very Looney Tunes-esque. And I don't know if that's a dig at Warner Brothers, which I can't imagine why they have it, but or if they were just trying to get away kind of from the Disney or maybe the producers thought that uh, if they had the typical Disney character that's all nice and sweet and good and everything – that they wouldn't have been able to pull this movie off. Well, see, I think you've hit on it right there, and you set it up in, the, in our intro. Disney characters and Disney cartoons are generally children-based, and they're they're very light touch. Warner Brothers cartoons are very friendly to children because they look cute, but the humor is very adult. There's a lot of adult humor, yeah. and you couldn't, you can't have Mickey and Minnie over there going, "Give me a martini, baby." You know that would never work. <laughs> you know that just it wouldn't, and nobody would buy it. it. You totally buy it if Daffy and like Yosemite Sam are sitting at the bar together. You know, you you could get that because we've almost seen that anyway. You know, so yeah. So I, I don't know if it's a dig or not. I, I'll tell you, there is some some precedent for some Disney violence, as I call it. Um, if you remember the old animated version of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. That, that they yeah. showed us when we were in school and stuff. If I'm not mistaken, that's a Disney product. It I, is. I, the knife throwing scenes and all that kind of stuff. I, I had flashback memories of that watching this. And I'm like, you know, we're mixing two studios talents together here. And it's kind of the, the vaudeville out there looney tune stuff but with the crisp animation that disney can give you but all the violent yeah. stuff felt like disney violence with the exception of the silly stuff which was the refrigerators on your head and all that that was all looney yeah did you, did you get what i mean i get what you're saying and also they said like i said big disney geek i am and <laughs> i and like i've said i am the disney geek which means i grew up on disney cartoons yeah. as since i was like three years old and on, I think it was on the Disney Channel back when this first came out or something, or behind the scenes, this is 20 years ago, that they said they wanted a combination of, like just like you said, Disney's crisp animation and Warner Brothers humor. That's what they were, that's actually what they were going for with Roger Rabbit. Now, that's what I want to talk next about is, is Roger Rabbit as a character, Anna. I, I had no idea who he was going into seeing this. It was a gutsy move to take something that had never been created as a cartoon, but to give it, you know, you get the sense that Roger is as big a star in this universe as Mickey and Bugs in their respective <laughs> universes. Did, did you feel that? Like if the Maroon was, like if you had, you had Looney Tunes and you had, uh, well, I guess if you had, you had Warner Brothers, you had Disney, and then the Maroon cartoons were their own, they were this third other thing. Roger was uh -huh. their Mickey or Bugs. Is that kind of how you, you read him? Because that's what I thought they were setting him up as. Yes, sort of. I read it as a little bit different. I read that he was his own star in his own right. He was the biggest star of all the team. Okay. He was bigger than Buzz, and he was bigger than Mickey. And I, that's how I took it, that he 
was the biggest star of all the teams. Well, he's it's it's he, I you know that's it's an interesting point. That's a hard thing to sell though on people, you know, because you don't know who he is. We all know those, you know, we all know Mickey and Bugs, right? But you also got to understand this movie. Another another thing about not so much Disney, but the Walt Disney Company is they have an awesome marketing machine, and this had Disney's marketing behind it, and this had just like I know from having kids is like they think like when the next Pixar movie comes out they've already seen it i mean so you there you've got to take them to see it because they have been anticipating this like my kids are anticipating toy story 30 for like two months (laughs) i mean it's they're like oh oh i want to see jesse oh i want to see woody i like buzz and blah 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 blah. and this and i don't think it's much different that's one thing disney has always had is their marketing and to top it off with this movie because it was a joint because Disney didn't have the money to produce it. So Eisner called in a favor to Spielberg. Yeah. So it had Spielberg behind it and Disney. So maybe today, since the whole falling out, the whole corporate falling out has happened that we can't look back and see it that way. See Rogers a big star, but I think they could have pulled it off. If they could have kept it together, I definitely they, they could have started its own franchise. I mean, we get in that in a bit. I, I was always curious as to, and I don't know, maybe he was just busy or something. Why Spielberg didn't want to take on this as a director. You know, he got behind it as a producer, but he didn't direct. You know, Zemeckis up to this point had, had had a couple of flops and then had done back to the future which was massive for him in 85, and that really gave him the chance to do Roger Rabbit. He had been in on it early on, but it, you know, couldn't convince anybody to do it because he had done, I think he had done a film with Kurt Russell and it had bombed, and it, uh, Romancing the Stone. He had done that, and it was okay, but Back to the Future is what launched him into, this is long before Forrest Gump and Cast Away and all that, launched him into the stratosphere, and, and he and Spielberg, of course, are buddies from way back. But I was always curious as to you know why he got this, and Spielberg didn't direct it. I, I I was always wondering about that. I think it's because Eisner didn't ask him to. Eisner went to him and proposed, just proposed that Disney and Amblin co-produce it together because Disney at this point in time didn't have the money. And you've got to understand mm. also from a corporate standpoint of Disney in the early to mid 80s, they were about bankrupt until Eisner came in and kind of cleaned up and got the whole animation thing is a precursor. This is 1988. The Little Mermaid is 1989. Beauty and the Beast is 91. And Aladdin is 92, which you can, is in Disney geekdom, yeah. you can say that is their second golden age of animation. Yeah. So, and this is kind of like got the ball rolling and this has been a pet project at this. And this has been, we talked, we've talked about like pretty woman and runaway bride bouncing around this whole thing has been bouncing around not only Disney but Hollywood since 1980 and doesn't get made till 1988. Oh yeah, and, and again, part of that is I think they had to wait for the technology to catch up too. And that's true. And also, at one point in time, um, at in the early 80s, before Michael Eisner, Card Walker, I believe, was the CEO of um, the Walt Disney Company, and he passed he he passed on it. But I think. It might have been Zemeckis. I'll have to go back and look. But went and bought the rights anyway for the book for twenty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. The Disney was like, "We don't want this. Why, why do this?" But 
he bought it anyway and got some animators to work on it and stuff. And then when Eisner came in, Eisner kind of made his pet project. But I think the main reason Spielberg didn't direct it is because he wasn't asked to. Well, yeah, and that's... I think that's the main reason. They just wanted him to produce and put some money behind it. And then they got George Lucas to handle the film's special effects. And well, they got Spiel- Spielberg to use his clout to persuade like Warner Brothers and Universal and stuff to use other cartoon characters in it. Well, I can believe that. And I like Bob Zemeckis for the most part. I like a lot of his work. Uh, you know, I mean, I kind of deplore the, the Back to the Future sequels because mm-hmm. they're terrible. But, but uh, you know, he's done a lot of other stuff that's really good. He's, he's definitely capable. I was just, I'm glad you told that story because I was curious. This seemed to be like something Spielberg would do, you know. But eh, you know, he, he still had his money behind it. His touch is on it; you can feel it because Zemeckis is mm-hmm. in his tree. I always say that. He, I just kind of put them together. They do a lot of the same stuff. And and this was you're right. This has been Bob Zemeckis' pet project for years. He wanted to do this thing. I, let's talk about Christopher Lloyd for a minute. Um, yeah. You know, we we talked a little bit about Roger as a character. Um, and I'll cut this. This is a side note. You know the guy that does the voice of Roger Rabbit? He was uh-huh. he's the sleep therapist in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Little little tidbit there. Oh, when, when Nancy cool. wakes up and has got Freddy's hat, he's the doctor. So but anyway, um, and he has that whole like scene like dreams are the blah 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 blah. And you'll hear him say there's like one line he says in that movie, and I'm like, Oh my god, that's Roger Rabbit. Like you can he'll slip into the voice. <laughs> it's funny. But anyway, uh, anyway, let's talk about Christopher Lloyd. Now, Zemeckis had directed him in Back to the Future, of course, as Doc Brown. Christopher Lloyd, great comedic actor when he's asked to do certain things. He really has one speed or, or one setting, and it's it's 10 or it's zero with him. And, and I want to tell you, I, I would say um, Christopher Lloyd is a cartoon as a person. So for him to play one, even though we don't find that to the end, really, what do you think of his performance as Judge Doom? That's what I'm trying to spit out. Um, first off, I mean, of course, considering I'm like a teenager, I didn't realize it was Christopher Lloyd. And I'm usually really good about picking something out yeah. until I watch this as like a teenager. I'm like, oh my God, that's the dude from the Back to the Future yes, movie. Yes, it's Doc, yeah. <laughs> oh, but, um, um, it's okay, but I mean, really, if you think about it, he doesn't have a lot of screen time. He's, he has his two speeds. I would think Doc Brown is a... 10 and judge doom is a zero i would agree with you on that but yeah i mean i thought his performance is okay okay and i think it has to do also with the makeup they used on him too it it, it was one of those things like i think the makeup had something to do with his character but what i really can't put into words it's definitely weird he's he's got this otherworldly quality about him where like when he's revealed to be a tune at the end of the film uh-huh. the climax i i gotta tell you if if you're paying attention at all especially if you're an adult watching this you've already figured that out a long time ago he's the only ominous character in the whole thing you know so mm-hmm. it, clearly he's the bad guy and you're you're sitting there going he's getting run over by a steamroller why am i not hearing anything crack and pop wait a minute and then he you know the whole cartoon moment he, he's just a big cartoon uh, it wasn't that big of a, a deal and you're right he's not on the screen a lot but he gets a a lot of he casts a really interesting shadow over this film. And I, I'll say this, this is a great plot element. The dip, the idea of paint thinner, mm-hmm. you know, what could destroy a cartoon paint thinner. 
You know, <laughs> what, what are they? They're just colors. So I, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. I thought it was kind of neat. And um, also it goes back to a line Jessica has in the film where she goes, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. way. Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of goes with the theme. And, I, I, you know, for all its bad points, this movie has has some very – the good points are kind of revolutionary, but I don't know if that really – but the bad points might be just so many, mm-hmm. like the plot holes and the um, – the special effects aren't aren't bad. And like I said, I think they're revolutionary in not only reviving Disney animation, but kind of a precursor to what we have for CGI, like Scooby Doo or something. You know, the Scooby Doo movies, which I don't know if that's a good thing being yeah. known as the, well, the the reason for that. But I mean, it's just the casting of um, Eddie with Bob Hoskins was was great, and I, I just can't figure out why this. And the movie was a great success. And as a, like I said, eight or nine year old, 1988, I loved this movie. But coming back and watching it as an adult, I just, I'm like, why well, do I don't like it so much? You know? Yeah, there's a quality that gets lost in, in the whole years away from it. And we'll get to that in, in a bit. I do want to talk about Jessica Rabbit for a minute, okay? And, mm-hmm. you know, her famous line, because I'm not bad, I'm drawn that way. Kathleen Turner's smoky, sultry voice, you know, and this. And I, I don't think that's supposed to be her. Because if, if you, I mean, Kathleen Turner's, a, you know, a pretty woman, but she's not drawn like that um i mean she she never looked that way i don't know who that's supposed to be but uh i think it's a a mix of multiple people but i i, I thought that was that's where i knew this was not just a kids movie as if we already didn't get that off baby herman you know and the subject matter we're talking about murder and all this other stuff and we're killing cartoons you know with the dip we've got this uh oversexed wife with the goofiest character in the film, Roger Rabbit, it'd be like Jar Jar Binks hooking up with, uh, you know, um, yeah. uh, what's her name? Amidala in the, in the, the Star yeah. Wars prequels, you know, it just would, uh, huh? Really? You know, I mean, well, that actually might've made those better, but anyway, I, I mean, uh, I, it, it's, it's odd. It, it makes you just feel I don't, that all, as a kid, that made me feel weird. And as an adult, I still feel weird about it. No, I actually, liked it and i'll um tell you why is because my mom always said about my dad that he made her laugh okay like and i mean my dad was not a bad looking man or anything but she was like i love your dad because he makes me laugh he makes me laugh he's so funny i love i love that and so i can kind of see where and he, she has the line in the movie at the end and eddie's like well what are you seeing roger and he's like she's like he makes me laugh so I, I, I don't find it that weird. Okay. Maybe, I don't maybe. find it as weird as that. And I think it goes back to our Ghostbusters thing we talked about where you were like, can Bill Murray really pull off the ladies' man? And I'm like, yeah, some, would he really get a girl like Sigourney Weaver? And I'm like, yeah, some women find a sense of humor attractive. And I, I can I can identify with that. So it doesn't bother. I don't think it's that creepy. That's a good, that's a good point. And Jessica's an interesting character here, though, because – they they create this whole love tryst with her. You know, is she cheating on Roger? Is she not? You know, and I think I, it was cute that the cheating would be, you know, patty cake with this other man. Yeah, I, I, I always <laughs> thought that 
when I watched it as an adult, I'm like, okay, so patty cake is the tune equivalent to sex. I'm like, okay. I, I, I guess All so. Right. I mean, it's their tunes. We don't get it. You know, it's it's definitely weird, uh, but it it works. I was I also thought there's some there's some metaphor going on there too, but the the fact that the tune patrol are weasels. You know, yeah. that you know, every dirty, you know, enforcer in any kind of noir film just has these mm-hmm. weasel characters. So why not make them actual weasels? I, it was, again, genius move there, you know, in the plot. It, there's a lot of things that just work for this. I want to talk about what doesn't work for me for this. I felt kind of mixed about this when I saw it as a kid. Um, I have now seen this movie three times in my lifetime. All right. I saw it again, I guess when I was maybe in college, I don't know, I just wanted to see it again, and then for this. And I'm having pretty much the same reaction consistently to it. I I think this thing suffers from the fact that it's trying to be too much at once. And while I applaud that effort, I don't think it's done quite as well because it's trying to be cute for the kids, but it's trying to be adult for the adults, and it's trying to be detective noir, and it's trying to be love story, and it's it, it, I, there's just too darn much happening here inside of it. it's it's hour and forty minutes for it to all work right, and I think it all works okay, but there's a lot of imbalance in this too. And, and well, watching this, I just I just keep feeling that about it. Well, I think the problem with it is I was looking online and there's one one a bunch of scenes that got cut. And if you look at the kind of middle of the movie mm-hmm. where Roger goes to Eddie and's like, "I need your help. I didn't do it. I'm being framed." And he's got the handcuffs. You know, he's handcuffed to Eddie, mm-hmm. and then Ed, and the weasels come and try to sniff out Roger, but he hides. He and Eddie hides them in the um, dishwater sink in the yeah. in the sink with the dishwater, and the weasels don't find them. Then he goes to the bar with Dolores and tries to saw off, and Roger just slips his hand out, and Eddie's like, "Could you, you could have done that the whole time?" He goes, "No, only when it was funny." And um, there's a whole whole segment there that got cut, and from what I read, I just read I didn't see what it was. I just read the script of it where they go to, um, and this would have kind of been cool, they go to um, Acme's funeral and do the eulogy as Foghorn Leghorn. Yeah. (laughs) And um, stuff like, yeah, yeah, and then uh, they're lowering it, and, you know, Acme, like you said in the plot summary, Acme does all these gags, like the stuff Wile E. Coyote gets to trick the Roadrunner, that stuff Acme does. So um, they're lowering the casket like this, gag comes out and all the tunes just laugh and think it's a fitting um a fitting end and then jessica and maroon have a confrontation at the cemetery and then so actually it was supposed to be like a day like there like if you watch the movie he leaves roger at the bar and then he's at his detective agency coming out of the bathroom and jessica's there to tell him that roger's framed and everything and there's like this whole day's worth of stuff. He goes back to the piano bar with D- Daffy and Donald and all kinds of stuff. And then he goes into Toontown and gets like a pig head drawn on him. And that's what he's washing off in the shower when Jessica finds him. Mm-hmm. And I think they it, I think they cut too much out because it just seems like as I was watching it, it just seemed like the plot moved very quickly. Well, it was just like 
boom, 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 and we're done, and it's the end, and you're kind of not satisfied. See, and I, okay, this is and this is a thing about Zemeckis films, and I'm going to say this, and I, I have said I like his work, okay, but I feel the same way about a lot of his stuff post Back to the Future. All right, uh-huh. that there just seems to be things that are left hanging that shouldn't have been, and I, I and if all that is is true, see that would have made an incredible. We told you the last time the last movie is two hours and twenty minutes long. Mary Poppins was this is an hour and forty minutes, and it's a lean hour and forty minutes. Really about an hour and thirty three <laughs> of real stuff. This would have been a great two hour, two hour and fifteen minute movie. It would have been perfect that way. It would have given more rise to it, and it. From everything I read, they cut that because they didn't want to spend so much time on the tune stuff. They wanted to have more of, of the real world and keep reinforcing that. They felt like if we keep slipping back and forth into cartoon world and real world, people are not going to know where we are. I, I didn't really have that problem. You, you kind of have to accept the world that this is all built in anyway going into uh-huh. it. That would have made this a much more complete film to have some of the other characters to have all the – you've got all the, the, the heavyweights of animation together, and they really only get seconds together, you know? Yeah. yeah and and, I, and I've I, always felt robbed about that. And I'm like, you know, darn it, I wanted Bugs and Don, uh, you know, and Mickey to do something. You know, like I wanted them to pour the dip on the judge, you know, something, you know, I I don't know. That's just, that was me. And that's my biggest problem I had watching it. But then again, I'm thinking of this as the little kid I was. And it's like, do they make it like that to keep little kids attention? You know what I mean? Because I mean, uh, this is kind of a tangent, but I said, you remember those Scooby-Doo cartoons? Yeah, yeah. I love those girls. Oh yeah, they're great. Yeah. For some reason, when I went, I remember I said one of our other podcasts, I went to college and they decided they couldn't put my cable in for like three weeks because yeah. they were over up. But anyway, I didn't start school yet. So when my cable got in, I started watching Scooby-Doo and I realized like they cut real fast. Yeah. It was like, boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, oh, they do this because like four-year-olds who watch it have no attention span whatsoever. And I wonder because they were trying to make this a kid's movie. That's why they did that. Well, see, and I okay, and that is where this movie fails, in my opinion, is that I, it was a Disney film. It had the marketing machine behind it, and I think it still works as a kid's film. But I think it would have even worked. It would have even had a broader audience and had a longer-lasting one if it had had a little bit more of that side in it because while we're talking about stuff that's been cut is animation stuff. Now it's adult yeah. themes. So the kids aren't going to get it, but it would have been funny to watch Foghorn Leghorn give the eulogy. That would have uh, been what awesome. He wrote, what he wrote was so, um, it was so funny. It was, um, it, I'm just picturing it in the Foghorn yeah. Leghorn um, thing. It's just, it's just hilarious. It's just so funny. And it, it's like, He's high, He's in a high, high, higher place now. Can't you imagine yeah. a Foghorn Leghorn saying something like that, giving a eulogy? I mean, doesn't it just sound like some backwoods preacher? Going it, 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 yeah, it, it, well, you know, it, and this is sort of subtle. I've always... And, and I, they're they were in totally different eras, but I've always felt a lot of Andy Griffith's delivery <laughs> on the funnier parts of the uh-huh. this show is very Falcorn Leghorn. You know that that kind of country, but still wise and funny. That deep baritone. I mean, it's those are those are hilarious characters. Having that kind of thing in this would have only made it better, in my opinion. But again, there is a central thesis here that there are really three people they're focused on. 
Jessica, Roger, and Eddie. And and really, Eddie and Roger. Right. I was going to say, I don't think they're focused on well, Jessica. She, she, they, she gets a lot of screen time, and they do a lot with her. So that she's in the mix of everything. Otherwise, why tie her up at the end, just tie Roger up? You know, I mean, it, they, they go through... They go through some trouble to make her the third character or whatever. But I think you've hit the point. They wanted to cut this thing quick, quick, quick and keep it moving because they really thought this is, you know, adults are going to go to this with kids. There's going to be adult themes in it. But this was built for the kids. And I don't know whose influence had that in mind, whatever. You know, we could argue that all day. But it it's what makes this not hold up as well. Now, craftsmanship-wise, this was a breakthrough, okay? It, it, you'll never hear me argue anything against that because it, it's wonderful. It, you can see the plates now and how they do some of it. Eh, there's there's some of it that slips, but for the most part, it's really well done. The voice acting's wonderful in it. Hoskins is great in it. Uh, Christopher Lloyd is goofy, but he's not really there enough to, to do much more than what he's asked to do. But I still just, I've always felt like there was something missing, and I know what it is. There's just, this thing leaves you wanting more. And that's kind of the legacy of this. And we need to talk about this a little bit, Anna. This thing left you wanting more, and Spielberg was ready to go on it. And then the famous fallout mm-hmm. began. So, you know, what happened to Roger Rabbit? That should have been the sequel. What the heck happened to Roger Rabbit? So. <laughs> well, actually, if you remember. In the early '90s, Disney did three um, three cartoons for Roger. Um, I know one was Tummy Trouble, Roller Coaster Rabbit, and I can't think yeah. off the top of my head what was the other one. And also, um, if you went to the parks in the early '90s, there was a gr- huge Roger Rabbit presence. And in fact, Disney was was promoting Roger. They, I mean, after the movie. They kept that marketing machine going, which is why I believe it's not much different than today. They kept that marketing machine going, and Roger had just a huge presence. They were expecting him to be the next Mickey Mouse. They were touting him and putting him up there to be the next Mickey Mouse. Spielberg owes him a favor because... Um, because of Indiana Jones, to be perfectly honest, is because um, nobody wanted to do Spielberg pitched Indiana Jones to all the studios and they were like, no, this is too risky. No, this is going to cost too much money. Nobody's going to want to see this. Well, at Paramount Eisner's like, you know what? I'll, I'll buy it. I'll take it. And then we got Raiders of the Lost Ark and we got a franchise. So to get Roger Rabbit made, Eisner went to Spielberg. Spielberg said, I'll do it, but we're 50, 50. I get 50% of merchandise. I get, or my company gets 50% of merchandise. My company gets 50% of um, anything in the parks, anything. And so they just, and so Eisner was just kind of between a rock and a hard place. He was like, okay, I'll do it. And he didn't really want to, but he did it. And then Roger Rabbit became a big hit. They had a huge presence at the parks when the studio, at the time it was MGM Studios, opened in 1989. They, they had a huge Roger at billboards for Roger Rabbit. They have windows above all the. They have it at the Magic Kingdom, but it's Disney Legends. They have, um, sh- you know, they have streetscapes, and above them have windows like they're real working businesses. And one of them was Eddie <laughs> Valiant's Detective Agency. They had plans to put, and it had a like the glass had a cutout of Roger, like he just burst through the window getting out or something. 
they have plans now. If you've been to the parks or you've looked at a map or something, there's now it's Hollywood Tower of Terror and the Rock and Roller Coaster. But they have plans to expand out what's now called Sunset. And they were going to make, it was just going to be like Maroon Studios. They were going to have a Benny the Cab ride. They were going to have a roller coaster. It's called, uh, oh, they were going to have a Baby Herman ride. It was called yeah. like Runaway Buggy. It was supposed to be a roller coaster. And then, um, and just got to a point that Eisner and Spielberg couldn't agree. And they had to have both of them sign off on anything that was in the parks, any movies, any cartoons, anything had to be signed off by both. Um, they just kind of pissed each other off, for lack of a better word, and they just never agreed. So Roger Rabbit, now the only place you could find, you can find them two places. I take that back. He does have a ride that got built before all this went down at um, Disneyland in California, and he has um, a kind of a, if I hate this resort, and that's another story for another day. But it's their cheap resort. It's Pop Century, Pop Century. So it's all this pop cultural gaudy Mm -hmm. pop cultural icon stuff from the 50s to the 90s and the only place Roger Rabbit is in all of Walt Disney World is as a big thing a big not even an animatronic it's just this big huge statue in the 80s section with a rolling on a can of turpentine or something and that's it and it it's all these and like they said on a blog i was reading it's all these cultural icons from the past and that's what roger rabbit has been regulated to in the disney world i I was about to say that you know the the side story to this is more interesting than a lot of this film the side stories to this are what has has lasted not the legacy of of what the film was or what it could have been and what it meant to computer graphics and animation and stuff, Mm -hmm. which, you know, that, that was advancing anyway. There were multiple artists working on that. Uh, It's not to say that they didn't have an influence on it, but you know, the abyss and Terminator two were still going to get made by somebody that was not associated with any of this. And that, you know, like star Wars had changed everything that changed everything. You know, there's, there's a lot of artists working on this. Well, I'd be willing to debate anybody on how culturally significant this really is. I think it's a snapshot shot of a time period and it was it was avant-garde for what it did and when it came out and we've talked about before that you could skip the entire year of 1988 in terms of movies except maybe this one you know because there's just not a there's not a lot of great stuff there folks like this competition was caddyshack 2 and cocktail come on now someday we're going to need to do like a worst of 1988 Uh, but you know you, you look at this film and its legacy is in its controversy I think, you know, it's, it's, I think that lasted longer than memories of this film. That that's at least what I, I take from it. Well, also, I think that what I read in the blog is very poignant is that in it, I mean, he's regulated to the pop century resort one. They didn't even finish building. Mm -hmm. That is where Roger Rabbit is regulated to in all of Walt Disney world. He's just this icon in this century that reminisces about past pop cultural icons. That's it. When 20 years ago, he was supposed to be the next Mickey Mouse. He had a, I was reading, he had a stage show. And sadly, I did not visit the Disney, the Disney resort at that time. So I don't remember any of this. But, and if I did, I was probably too young to remember it. But he had, he was in parades. He had balloons. He had a stage show at the beginning of um, in the front of the castle. Now it's all princess stuff. But anyway, he um, 
I mean, they wanted him to be the next Mickey Mouse. They fully intended it. He w- he was supposed to be, like I said, you thought he was the star at Maroon. Mickey was the star at Disney and Bugs was the star at Warner's. And I thought he was like the star over everybody. That's what Roger Rabbit was supposed to be. And he was supposed to revive these short cartoons. Like I said, they did three of them. That's what he was supposed to do. And just because of this feud between Amblin and Disney, they could not get anything done. I mean, they got, I'm shocked they got the three. Um, and it comes down to money. I think Spielberg got mad with the cartoons and thought that Disney was trying to kind of screw them over. And he got mad and said, you know what? If um, that's fine, we've got 50 50. If you want to make a ride or anything, I got to sign off for it. You know what? I'm not doing it. So I think that's part of it was that he was getting this presence in the parks and they were doing these. Oh, I know what it was now. It's because they did three cartoons. All of them were in front of a Disney movie. None were in front of an Amblin. Well, the thing the thing about that is is you hate to see good franchises ruined by things like that. It's not this isn't the only one that ever got killed by that. So I mean, it happens all the time. The last thing I read, and I got this from Wiki, so you know, take it for what it is. But mm-hmm. was that they, you know they're moving forward on a sequel now, and 2012, there's going to be a part two come out. I, I'm curious to see where they go with it. Um, the original idea was to do a prequel where it was going to be who discovered Roger Rabbit. It was going to be a lot more of the animation interaction that you know I talked about. I wanted. I don't know if they're going that way again or not. We'll have to see. To me, you and I were talking about this. At this point, we're looking at something that's 22 years old now. Is why do a sequel? I, at this point, I think you could even. I hate to use the word reboot or remake. I don't know if that's right, but I think it just needs to be its own thing. I don't know that I want to see any of those characters except Roger and maybe Jessica come back again. I was just thinking if it came back as a reboot, who do you think could do Jessica Rabbit's voice now? You know, that's a good point because I was just going to say they don't need to get, they'll probably get her, but they shouldn't get Kathleen Turner to do it. Uh, well, I'd say Kim Cattrall, but I don't think anybody would buy it. But, um, you know, just having to watch Sex in the City, she could work it. She, she's got that same kind of attitude. If you gave Jessica a little more attitude, Jay, I think that's a great casting. I would buy that. I think that would be perfect. I think the detective role, because Hoskins is a little, little long in the tooth, too. I don't know who you get to do that. Um, I, got, I got nothing on that. I have no idea who could do that. Um, Charles, uh, what's his name, still alive. Fleischer's still alive, so I mean, he'll do Roger Rabbit, but um, I have no idea who would play Eddie. Well, again, will he even be a character in it? We don't even know. You know, it's it's one of those guarded secrets. We'll have to wait and see. They should bring it back with his bro- like a prequel and his brother's alive and gets killed. By with Teddy, yeah, get a couple of guys together. It didn't get the right the right pairing. The thing is here with this, it's I'm I'm curious to see how much of it will still be in the cultural in the cultural forefront by the time they release another movie. I mean, if it comes out in 2012. We're putting 24 years between... You talk about waiting a long time between sequels. Um, that, that may be a record. Uh, 24 years between the first one and the second one. It's going to be interesting to see how they pull it off. And we're at the point in the podcast, though, where we got to make recommendations on this thing. What, do you, what is your play recommendation for Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Occasional play for nostalgia. I'm going to say this. This is a once play, and I'm going to tell you why. Because once you've seen this thing... You don't need to see it again because all the groundbreaking animation and interaction in it you you see on a daily basis now, and you've probably seen it done better. Once you've seen it, there's nothing to hold on to to make you want to go back to it. 
it's not really built for the kids, though they'll kind of enjoy it, but they also won't get at least half of it. I, there's not a lot to hold on to here. Well, folks, we thank you for joining us on our two-parter here of Cartoons and People. Hope you've enjoyed our podcast. Please leave us a message in our forums at continuousplaypodcast.com. Please leave us a message at continuousplaypodcast.com. For Anna, I'm Jay, and until next time, thanks for listening to Continuous Play. Thank you for listening to our Cartoons and People retrospective episode of Roger Rabbit. Please visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for other series, and feel free to leave us a message on our forums or in iTunes. Continuous Play is not affiliated with any movie, television, book, music, or publishing-related company. Any discussion of the plots, characters, or music from the films is done so for entertainment purposes only. All properties are copyright and trademark of their respective owners and all rights are reserved. <laughs>